Well, I hoped you liked that as much as I did. It was uh, quite a, quite a refreshing hymn, that. Psalm 51, then. So, well, what we're going to do now is uh, we're going to have our Bible reading. So we're preaching through we're preaching through uh, Mark's Gospel, and so we're on the we're now on the 11th chapter, and today we're looking at the first 11 verses. Mark 11, starting at verse. One. And when they, that's Jesus and the disciples, came nigh to Jerusalem and unto Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sendeth forth two of his disciples and saith unto them, Go your way into the village over against you, and as soon as ye be entered into it, ye shall find a colt tied whereon never man sat. Loose him and bring him. And if any man say unto you, Why do ye this? Say ye that the Lord hath need of him, and straightway he will send him hither. And they went their way, and found the colt tied by the door without in a place where two ways met. And they loose him, and certain of them that stood there say unto them, What do ye loosing the colt? And they said unto them, Even as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus. And cast their garments on him, and he sat upon him. And many spread their garments in the way, and others cut down branches off the trees and strode them in the way. And they that went before and they that followed cried, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he had looked round about upon all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. So we left Jesus and the saints last week on the road to Jerusalem. You remember there was this great healing of that blind man called Bartimaeus and we saw that not only was this a waypoint in Mark's biography of Jesus but it also provided us with some really powerful symbols of God's salvation of men and women the journey to Jerusalem is now almost over. Jerusalem was just on the other side of this large hill. In fact, this was the Mount of Olives, no less. And it was the purpose of Jesus to enter Jerusalem, not uh, on foot, but riding on an animal. And this is why he sends two of his disciples to go and collect one. I'm not sure whether Jesus had made a prior arrangement with the owner of the donkey or he was just exercising his control over that person, over that owner's mind from a distance. Mark doesn't seem to concern with that, so we won't be. <laughs> so before we look, before we look at some of the aspects of Jesus's approach to Jerusalem, I feel that I should explain the title of this message. Perhaps you'd expect something like the triumphal entry of Jesus, or the Great Victory Parade of Christ. But I've given it a title, The Black Parade. 
Not that titles are of much importance in sermons, but since I do use them, they should reflect something of the tone of the message, shouldn't they? So, and what it is I, I, I want to bring to your attention today are contrasts seen throughout this account. Yes, the son of David was arriving at the city of David. The king was indeed coming to set up his kingdom. But the stark reality was, Jesus would be dead within the week. This was a parade, but there was a black cloud overshadowing it all. It was the cloud of the vengeance of God that would bring a, a storm of utter anguish into the soul of Jesus. Therefore, something of a black parade. So I said about contrasts, and the first one I'd like to mention, contrasts, is this one. We see Jesus as sovereign, yet humble. Jesus had arranged for a, a young donkey to be brought to him. Now, it would have been seen as an unusual request. Pilgrims going to Jerusalem were meant to go on foot. It's clear Jesus was intending to make some kind of statement. But what was it? A small point worth noticing is, it was a donkey, you'll notice, that had never been ridden. And this is of interest because, according to the law of Moses, animals dedicated to the service of God mustn't have previously been used as working animals. He wanted to be noticed. The unveiling of his identity and his purpose was, was continuing. And last time we, we saw how he was addressed by, by Bartimaeus as son of David, remember? And he, he didn't object to that. And now he'll go even further and give clues to his kingship, his sovereignty. Listen to this reference in uh, Second uh, Kings. In Second Kings. This is in chapter 9, verse 13. It says, Then they hasted and took every man his garment and put it under him on the top of the stairs and blew with trumpets, saying, Jehu is king. Hmm. So it wasn't at all uncommon for people to create you know, some kind of pathway for a noble figure to make a grand entrance. I mean, today, <laughs> noble figures are like people in Hollywood, aren't they? But, you know, we say... The red carpet has been rolled out for them. And they walk on this red carpet, not on the pavement like commoners. <laughs> and so it's it, it's supposed to be for someone noble. And, well, in today's society, those are the noble people. But here, um, this noble figure was truly noble. He was none other than the king, uh, Jesus Christ. And even more relevant th than, than this is this prophecy from... Zechariah and it's Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 it says rejoice greatly O daughter of Zion shout O daughter of Jerusalem behold thy king cometh unto thee he is just and having salvation lowly and riding upon an ass a donkey there's no doubt in my mind Jesus was fulfilling this exact prophecy their king was coming to them 
he was just and in his purpose of dying for the sins of his people it's rightly said he had salvation but the great contrast in that prophecy isn't exactly my point today the verse starts by talking of a king more so the king of kings but it calls him lowly lowly and riding on an ass a donkey where was the white horse surely nothing less would be fitting for the king of kings and here is that contrast that paradox the prophecy was about the king of kings but it portrays him as humble this is something that would make no sense to the kings of this earth we we said last week uh, how bizarre it would be uh, for a king uh, in our day to do all his own housework and we concluded this is the type of king Jesus is he, he's a servant as well as a king the picture that was prophesied and which was fulfilled in Jesus here is one of a very special kind of king one who knows he's both absolute ruler of the world but also a servant of men and in that unique uh, role that stance he sets us a great example we who are believers are called in the Bible kings and priests unto God it says we rule with Christ even now yet we're urged to find true humility and we're, we're, to, um, we're to assume always that, that our other brothers and sisters in Christ are better than us that's a hard one isn't it we tend to find it easier to spot sins in others than ourselves so if we, uh, we secretly ranked ourselves you know in terms of godliness or something you know we wouldn't be at the bottom would we let's face it you know in our own mind but we have to foster this idea that others are better than us we have to just believe that there's an awful lot of sin in us we're not aware of and so we should let that keep us humble the crucial difference with Jesus's humility is that his ultimate act of service wasn't something like we could do it was to give his very life so that we the Christians could escape the damnation that was due to us well here's another uh, contrast Jesus was triumphant yet saddened now if we viewed this episode from a, a different standpoint as in fact you know one of the other gospel writers does we may well rightly call this episode the triumphal entry of Jesus and many of the commentators use this exact phrase as, as headings headings for this account in Mark now I don't I don't want us to think that this wasn't you know at least in one sense a truly triumphant entrance by Jesus he was after all riding into Jerusalem rather than walking he'd have been the only one I think in the crowd to be riding in unless there were disabled people maybe his disciples had used their own clothing to provide a more comfortable ride on the on the donkey and then then there was the wider circle of people around him which was creating this special entrance in the city for him there's a, a prophecy in Zechariah 
another prophecy which I think is applicable here says and his feet this is the prophesied one his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives which is before Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof towards the east and towards the west now I will say that maybe the bulk of Christians have been attracted by explanations of prophecy that are more exciting to them you know I made this point many times when we were looking uh, at the book of Revelation together people are just instead of instead of doing their own work instead of taking the harder path of Bible study they just go with whatever sounds the most exciting and so it means that there are those who interpret this prophecy in Zechariah and most of the others uh, rather quite literally so rather than seeing this as a reference an important reference to Jesus at the Mount of Olives as he travels to Jerusalem during his incarnation uh, this visit being the, 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 the lead up to the atonement itself they see this instead as a reference to the second coming of Jesus and there'd be earthquakes and mountains flying all over the place I've no intention today of trying to tell you what uh, all those sort of geological you know upheavals uh, what they mean symbolically but certainly I'm hoping you've come to see the prophecy is about the coming of the kingdom with the first advent of Jesus not his second advent So this prophecy adds to the picture and adds to the triumph of Jesus' arrival at the great city and centuries of prophecies were coming to a head. The atonement to end all atonements was about to take place. The saviour of Israel had come. Satan had tried to stop Jesus getting to this point, you know. Do you remember? Well, he tried to have Jesus killed as a toddler through Herod. He'd thrown all kinds of temptations Jesus's way trying to get him to lessen his trust in the father he manipulated religious people to try and stop Jesus's mission and even kill him and Satan had even influenced one of Jesus's own disciples to disrupt his purpose but despite this and much much more Jesus is here he's arrived and in fulfillment of prophecy he travels over the Mount of Olives and enters the city on a donkey there was an element of great triumph in this entrance of his but we have to remember his struggle to fulfill his mission and to, to be at this point it was to end in his own death Calvary was no longer something far away on the horizon of Jesus' life. The great suffering was getting closer by the day. And I expect, I expect Jesus felt it accelerating towards him. I can imagine he rode toward the city feeling both a sense of joy or excitement at fulfilling his grand purpose but was there not also perhaps a, a desire that the donkey would walk just a little bit slower? We know Jesus as a true man recoiled 
from the thought of being put through so much suffering. But being the Son of God incarnate, he were, he, he, he'll always have his own will aligned to his Father's. And remember, brethren, this wasn't just a bare obedience to his Father. What drove him away from his reluctance, if you like, want to call it that, to, to fulfilling his, 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 his duty as the Saviour? Part of that was motivated by love, lo love for us. Love for us, the, the believers. What kind of love Jesus has to us, it is immense. I, if you don't truly belong to Christ, you've got no right to think Jesus loves you. No right whatsoever. Things are not okay between you and God. And I read a comment um, uh, on the internet yesterday by someone which sort of epitomises the attitude of these, this multitude of people out there in our own society who are calling themselves Christians and don't belong to God at all. This person said, uh, I've never been to church, never will, not interested in all that, but I'm a Christian. And it just, there's so much of what defines a Christian is tied up in fellowship and praying with others, encouraging others, listening to the ministry of the word with others, evangelizing with others. You get the picture now that this is, the, the Christian's part of a group and there's no place in God's church for solitary Christians. Now, if you are forced to be isolated because you don't have a church that preaches the gospel faithfully. Maybe maybe you're somewhere around the world and that's why you're, you're tuning in online to, to preachers. You're trying to find some good ministry. That's a different matter. You want fellowship. These people don't. And so to those people, I would just say again, God does not love you. Um, God's furious with you he, he can barely look at you so I would say to you that if you are on the fringes make this the day when you commit yourself to Jesus Christ and enter into his love and just experience what we experience well here's my third point about Jesus that he was praised yet abandoned now I think there are two mistakes made by some when they comment on this episode so on the one hand you have the more common view that this was nothing less than an outright victory parade the people had finally ex accepted Jesus as the Messiah and they escort him in this most glorious entrance and on this view all the people involved knew who Jesus was and what his real mission was and on the other hand we have the view of a few of the, of the commentators they make out that all this uh, noise and activity has almost nothing to do with Jesus so let's try and make sense of this let's see if we can get a better understanding of what, what, what all these people were doing well the first thing we should acknowledge is that this act of singing on the road to Jerusalem was common already before Jesus came during major uh, festivals or on pilgrimages like this one the Jews would quote to the Psalms and it was likely 
that they used some form of intonation. So, you know, maybe halfway between speaking and singing, perhaps. But here's the question. Were they singing these things today the way they always had? Or were they making reference to Jesus as the Christ? The word Hosanna, which is pretty much the same in, in uh, Greek and Hebrew. Hosanna means uh, something like save us or God save. But again, this was used in Jewish praise before Jesus came. And it's difficult to make the case for a big victory parade. Whenever everyone arrived in Jerusalem, the people seemed to have just dispersed. Jesus had a brief look around the place, then everyone went home. Had this been the big majestic affair some imagine, the Roman authorities would have treated it as an insurrection, as an uprising and clamped down on the whole thing. Having said all that, we can't say this had nothing to do with Jesus. Look at the evidence in the scriptures. People were laying out the red carpet, if you like, for him. And we get a clue from elsewhere in the Gospels because we read that the Pharisees were telling the Pharisees were telling Jesus to stop the people saying all these things about him. So it does appear that at least some of the praise was being expressed with reference to Jesus. So hopefully now you're beginning to see the real picture. These uh, pilgrims were excited. They were in a state of religious excitement. The Passover was near. And the nearer they got to Jerusalem, the more excited they became. So I believe here we have a mixture of attitudes. For those disciples of Jesus, walking with him, their praise would have been directed to him. Others would be making reference to Jesus, but in a less confident way. And others would be worshipping God the way they've always done, with no idea. No idea that the very saviour they were speaking of in their psalms was a few feet in front of them, or a few yards behind them. Few, I think, would have recognised in Jesus the fulfilment of Zechariah's prophecies even though he was there, even though he was there in front of them, sitting on a donkey. And for some, uh, even if they suspected something significant was going on, uh, it seems they soon forgot. Most of them forgot about it soon. The picture of the crowds having a variety of understandings like this, it fits in well with the rest of the passage, do you not think? Because we've seen... We've seen the contrast between Jesus displaying his sovereignty while at the same time showing his humility. We've seen that his approach to Jerusalem was in some ways triumphant, but in other ways a cause of great dread in Jesus. And perhaps also with that dread, by the way, was, um, was sorrow that this city was going to be destroyed. But now, even in the praises of this procession, we see a mixture of those who know Jesus and those who don't. As we consider those who were temporarily sort of 
emotionally affected those who for a moment believed Jesus was the Messiah we can learn a useful lesson no matter who you are it's very easy to be swayed by the behavior of the group that you belong to the psychiatrist psychologists have names for these things you know uh, you know group influence peer pressure I don't know and mobs are are easily created easily uh, roused because it's within human nature to copy the behavior of the people in the group well in our own experience of this world uh, we see people excited don't we for a short while by the things of God but it doesn't last it was never going to last because it wasn't based on a sincere act of repentance and I, I, I truly fear I fear when I see people become religious without signs that it's genuine so I asked them questions about sin such as this some really putting them on the spot deliberately I'd say for example when did you realize then you were utterly vile in God's sight and you can guess there's going to be two reactions there. If they go, vile, wouldn't wouldn't say it was that bad. See, you know then that they they just don't understand the seriousness of the sin. Now it could be that they're still on that journey to having the seriousness of it being fully revealed to them. But it tells me something. It tells me. It gives me a clue to help me sort of understand where, where they are. You know, are they are they genuinely seeking God, uh, or they just fancy something new in life? And we we can see this uh, tendency within the church too, uh, as part uh, of a congregation. It's very easy, you know, to be swept along with the beliefs and practices of the majority. Maybe that's uh, more especially so in larger congregations. But sometimes those things believed are wrong. Now Christians must take part in group activities, I said this earlier, we belong to a body of people and we don't do things together because we have to, we love to do those things. The Christian likes nothing better than being in the company of other believers, especially in the worship of God. But the believer must find a balance between group involvement and personal self-examination. Now although our little story today seems to end in a bit of an anticlimax. We we should we should uh, remember it's all part of uh, God's just quiet, unswerving purpose. It just keeps going on. The sun's going down. The crowds are dispersing, making their way to their accommodation. All the excitement of the day has ended. We're left with this out-of-place figure of Jesus taking a look around the temple, surveying it, observing what's going on. But he's coming back, and we'll see in the next week or two how he begins to ramp up his message and go face-to-face -face with the religious leaders. But it's been a long day. They've walked many miles and uh, most of it has been uphill 
Even Jesus has had a long day and he needs to go to bed and get some rest. And knowing what he had to do over the next few days, he needs it. You know, even even this little minor detail of him surveying the temple has some significance. Listen to what the prophet, the prophet Malachi says. This is in Malachi 3 and verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. He shall suddenly come to his temple. He's come. Sorry, it says, Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. So that's it, he's come. This is it. This is it. What a great character Jesus is. He's the ultimate sovereign, but the ultimate servant. One who won the greatest victory in history, yet a victory that involved subjecting himself to terrors. One who has an extreme love for the brethren, but who will judge everyone else with extreme fury. We've hovered over this story today and hopefully gained a better idea of what was happening. But I hope you can also take something to apply to yourself. I've encouraged you, while understanding you're a member of a body of people, to remember your individuality before God. Jesus did die for the church, but he died for individuals at the same time. You need to examine your own spiritual health. You need to take time to get into the scriptures by yourself. And although you're to learn, you're to learn from those people God has placed in your life to minister the word to you, you have to individually have a good conscience about the things you believe. We've seen an example today about how, you know, group excitement can lead to temporary shallow beliefs now the doctrinal positions the the beliefs you come to you arrive at must be more solid than that i'll finish by saying just one more thing something else we can take from this passage the real victory of jesus was not this procession on a donkey it was at the cross and that has an application for us those who want to confess Jesus as their saviour must understand that to walk that narrow way which leads to eternal life involves carrying your cross. It involves some suffering. If you want to follow Jesus, you will suffer with him one way or another. Jesus' time in this world was peppered with trial and suffering. But our walk is not the same as his. He was a man of sorrows precisely because of what he had to face at Calvary. And because he faced that Calvary experience, you and I don't have to. Now, that applies to you if you're a believer. 
of course, if, if you're not a believer, then what he suffered on the cross, you're going to have to suffer, really. But unlike Jesus, we're not meant to be men and women of sorrows. Now, we should expect trials. We should expect trials in this life. But we must always remember that the norm for us should be the experience of Holy Spirit fruit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Keep going, brethren. Keep going, keeping God's word. Keep praying. Maintain fellowship and understand that no matter what you go through, God is in it all. And he'll deliver you and restore unto you the joy of salvation. Now the God of all grace who has called us into his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. After that you have suffered a while. Make you perfect. Establish you. Strengthen you and settle you. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thank you so much, folks, for, for for being here. I can't see you, but I know you're all out there listening, attending on the words of God from the Bible. I hope this has been a blessing. I hope you've been challenged as a believer in those ways I mentioned. And I hope if you're an unbeliever or a searcher that you've also been challenged and that today might be a very special day, the day that you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do want to know more about these things, please do get in touch by email or phone. Bang on my door, day or night. I mean it. If you want to know more, it would be a joy and a blessing to me to be able to share something more of the gospel with you. So, until such a time, we may see you again uh, at our next worship next Sunday. Thanks for dropping by. God bless. <laughs>